don't really even want to replace the word innovation with anything. What I want people to show me is, here's a problem that I discovered, and here's how I solved it. Let's talk about the implications of my solution. What I would want to see are people basically showing me through their actions how they want to make the world better. On this episode of Change the Narrative, I talk with Mary Jo Matta, the lead at Google's education equity team, about what innovation really looks like in schools and businesses. Spoiler alert, it's not what you expect. This is Change the Narrative, the podcast about innovation in education and the workplace. I'm your host and tour guide, Michael Hernandez. this recording in early March. Just as the coronavirus was starting to hit the U.S., Los Angeles had its last major public event before the stay-at-home order, the LA Marathon. If you could only see the colorful costumes, the smiles, and the family cheering their loved ones. We miss these social interactions, the parties, the sporting events. We miss the LA Marathon race. But did we really miss the rat race? The coronavirus pandemic has disrupted virtually every system in society. Schools have shifted to distance learning. Restaurants and coffee shops have had to pivot to become bodegas. Museums have developed online tours. Not because they want to, but because they have to. In other words, we're in the middle of the biggest innovation revolution in decades. As a high school teacher, I've struggled to get students and colleagues to embrace creativity and innovation as a core skill that we teach. And we're finding out now that these aren't frivolous nice-to-haves or skills outside of our core curriculum. They're critical to our very survival. We look desperately to scientists, political leaders, and teachers to come up with creative solutions because our lives and our livelihoods are literally at stake. What we told ourselves was impossible before about online learning, about remote work, about integrating ed tech is turning out to actually be possible. Employees can work productively from home, Students can learn when they're not sitting in desks all day. Social media can help us strengthen our connections to others, not just distract us. Spending a lot of time with family, uh, well, that may be a good thing, but at least we've remembered the value of a home-cooked meal and maybe even learned to bake bread in the process. I have a feeling schools and businesses won't ever look the same again, but that's probably a good thing, given the many problems we've struggled with like climate change, high-stakes testing, inequity in education, lack of access to healthcare. So as we deal with our immediate anxieties caused by the pandemic, let's take a moment to pause and think about how we're going to come out of this situation stronger, wiser, and more humane. Let's be open-minded about the role of change and how we can leverage it to make the world better. More than ever, we need to forge new paths build interconnected systems, and rewrite the rules of what it means to learn, to be productive, or just to be a good friend. We can't find the right path through the tunnel vision of homogeneity or nostalgia, whether you're an educator, a product manager, or a voter. As Einstein said, you can't use an old map to explore a new world. When we could still have sporting events, I'd always joke with my daughter and her friends on our high school cross-country team if they were running towards something or away from something but I wonder if that's actually the right question to ask ourselves right now, in this moment. How can we rewrite these systems that have been broken for a long time 
and change the narrative of education and the workplace. I recorded this conversation with Mary Jo Matta last summer, long before the COVID-19, but her insights into innovation are even more important now, given the fact that everyone is improvising and has become a practitioner of innovation. Featured in Forbes 30 Under 30, Mary Jo is a born educator, from her start as a middle school science teacher in Houston, Texas, to her current work as a lead at Google on the education equity team, where she's working to develop computer science education programs for high school and college students of color. Aside from her time served teaching, Mary Jo was also a director of EdSurge, a member of the Scratch Ed team at the MIT Media Lab, and one of four founding education entrepreneurship fellows at the Harvard University Innovation Lab. She has spoken at Stanford University, the University of Virginia, TEDx Chicago, and South by Southwest EDU. So you've been a middle school math and science teacher and also worked in private industry. What are some of the challenges you faced when trying to innovate or make change happen in those spaces? When I think of education in the private space versus education in um, like K-12 spaces, you would think that there would be very different challenges when it comes to innovating. But to be honest, human behavior doesn't really vary as much as I used to think it would across different environments. Um, So I'll give you an example. So one of my uh, teaching uh, opportunities was with a a Catholic school down in Los Angeles. And one of the things that I thought was fascinating was when we were exploring bringing in technology one-to-one into the system, Um, the desire to innovate was literally born out of this desire to keep up with the Joneses and not lose kids to charter schools, which is something that Catholic schools have been facing for uh, quite a number of years now. And so the desire to innovate came out of really a desperate need to, to make sure that things were okay. And funnily enough, being here at Google, what I've also observed is it is very easy to fall into this pattern of figuring out one thing that works and then doing it over and over and over again. But again, the desire to innovate comes out of like an extreme need that's often born out of um, some dire circumstances. And when it comes to the challenges, you know, there are always going to be people, I swear, in any industry, no matter where you work, that say they want innovation but are not willing to get down and dirty and are not willing to say goodbye to certain things in order to allow for new things to come about. And that's, I think, been one of the hardest challenges that I faced. Well, that's incredible. I would have assumed that it would be a lot easier in private industry. You know, it's funny. You would think that because private industry has money and private industry oftentimes has resources. At the same time, think about it. Every private company is beholden to investors or the people that have, um, you know, sat on the board for years and years and years. And even though they want you to innovate, they also at the end of the day want you to make the stock value go up, right? And so in some ways it's catch 22 because how are you supposed to innovate if you're being held to arbitrary circumstances that oftentimes are connected to financial incentives? Now that being said, I will say um, there are things in private industry that have made my life a little bit easier when it comes to innovating, going back to more of the abundance of resources and more of the abundance of support. Um, But one thing I've noticed is 
there are certain spaces that uh, private companies are more willing to innovate in and others that they are less willing to innovate in. And so when you get into it, you realize that the distribution of those resources oftentimes is maybe not necessarily what you were expecting. So that can be an additional challenge as well. The truth of the matter is, is that I don't care what school you work at, you are absolutely under-resourced. It, it's just a given. And because of that, schools are always for, forced to operate under the most limited situation in general. The um, Stanford D School has um, a great uh, design challenge where basically they ask you to redesign the concept of a wallet, you know, something where you hold money. But there's a moment in that challenge where they say, okay, you have, you know, $100,000 to redesign the wallet, what do you do? And then a few minutes later, they say, now you have $1 <laughs> to redesign the wallet, what do you do? And in many ways, I kind of see that as a direct correlation between like private industry versus uh, schools and what they're up against. Doesn't mean you can't be less innovative, but it certainly means that you're under more constraints. Well, that's a great challenge, I love that. Whether you've got the resources or not, convincing other people to adopt or embrace change is always hard, no matter what. So can you share some strategies that you've used or maybe you've seen other people use to get change to happen inside an organization? Um, well, <laughs> I would say the mindset that I've absolutely adopted over the past year and a half, and I continue to stand by this and will continue to stand by it as time goes on, is to ask for forgiveness later. Um, I find that <laughs> it works for me too. <laughs> I mean, when it really comes down to it, I think that, um, there are always going to be people that are afraid of change. I actually was talking to Larry Cuban once. Um, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his work for, for those of you who don't know him. Larry Cuban is a, um, former professor of education at Stanford. Um, probably one of the foremost thinkers on education of our lifetime. And he, um, is retired now, but he writes a blog pretty consistently about technology in education. And one of the things I remember he told me one time was he said, you know, Mary Jo, there are three groups of people. There are people that are always going to be ready for change. They're good to go no matter what. Yes. Then there's people that no matter what are just going to hate it. Like they will never support what it is. And then the group in the middle are people that will probably adjust to it, but are going to do it begrudgingly. That's the group that you should focus on. And I think in many ways, I have observed that there are a lot of people in that center group, but what they need is they need you to step up and just make the change happen and show them what the benefits are, what the benefits of that innovation are going to be in the long run, and then slowly bring them around. And if they're frustrated, you can ask for that forgiveness later, but ultimately what they need is they need evidence. Um, and sometimes starting to go through the process without necessarily getting that permission is the right way to do it, at least in my experience. So guerrilla style innovation. A bit, yeah. I think that guerrilla innovation is actually a great way to describe it. Because the, uh, nine times out of 10, at least in my observation, even in the private industry, where, again, you were beholden a lot to the stockholders that are hoping for giant returns, they need to see it to believe it. If you're just talking about it, it's not enough. They actually need to see evidence of it, even if they begrudgingly see the evidence of it. I mean, the programs I think I work on at Google are you know, a prime example of that. They are programs that um, didn't necessarily have 100% support, but now that they've been around for a while, these um, you know, free computer science education programs that I work on, people, people are like, yes, I'm a really big fan of this. However, it really took creating the programs and, and carrying them out and growing them 
to give people, some people, the evidence that they needed to support it. I wish it wasn't that way, but if there's anything I've learned about innovation practices, it's having a, <laughs> having knowledge of human behavior and human tendencies can oftentimes be the pre-knowledge that you need to do this work. So you seem to be pretty successful in your career. From, and from <laughs> this is not gonna respond. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, you. from from this perspective, you okay. seem like you're pretty successful in your career, and uh, your ability to influence others seems pretty effective. Um, has it always been that way for you? Hell no, not even close. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. I actually don't think that I have really been an influencer for that long. I just got lucky in the sense that. Betsy Corcoran, the CEO of AdSurge, offered me the opportunity to have a platform to share my experiences as someone who had been a teacher coming into the ed tech space where oftentimes teacher voice is claimed to be of importance but not really given the space and the time that it deserves. Um, I mean, back when I was teaching, though, you know, I remember having moments where especially in the systems that I worked for, which I won't, shall remain nameless, but I guess you can look it up in my bio, but where I would bring things up to levels of management above me, you know, principals, people at the district level, um, and I wouldn't really get the time of day. And I think to myself, what was it about that time that um, kept me from being able to have sort of that up-level up management influencing, right? Especially from someone like me on the ground who was seeing how students were and weren't learning every day. Um, but, and I think there's a commentary really there about the type of attention that we pay certain people. I've seen influencers online who talk, 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 but they don't do anything. It's all about this crafting this narrative of like trust and authenticity. But to me, if you're not actually on the ground doing the work, it's kind of hard for me to trust what you say. So as time goes on, I think what I've tried to retain from, from my early days of teaching is there are lots of people on the ground doing the work that don't get listened to, and that's not okay. And so I think that why I've been able to continue to garner this influential power is because I try to do a good job and I don't, I'm not very good at it all the time, let the record show, but I try to do a good job of listening to the people on the ground and trying to elevate what it is that they need um, because I've been lucky enough to have been given this opportunity to share voice, right? And then also calling people out on their bullshit as well. Um, one of the things that I think, and I would call more influencers to do is not only to call out each other on the bullshit things that they say without actually like experiencing what that work looks like on the ground, but also calling out themselves. Um, I love it when people call me out on Twitter or call me out in, you know, forums where I've said something that might not necessarily be correct because frankly, I don't know everything. And the only way for me to improve as an influencer is to get that feedback and take it, take it in stride. That's amazing. That's so great. You have that community that, that supports each other rather than take down or like, you know, borrow or, or steal or climb on top of you or. <laughs> well, um, I would say that everybody in the community is like that, but, but there are definitely some gems in there for sure. So thinking about that time when you were in school trying to innovate and not having that place at the table, do you think it was because you were young or because you were a woman or what do you think was going on? Oof, I think there were a lot of things that played into that. Um, 
youth potentially. Um, I think that part of it was just management up at the top had just so much that they had to deal with that it, it wasn't even an option for them to take feedback and, and iterate on it because they were already being held to such um, intense standards. I, I do think that that's pretty common, unfortunately, for a lot of K-12 systems is there isn't the time and the space to be able to really improve practice when we are all doing 150% and we only have capacity for 100. I mean, I don't think there's a single teacher in existence that doesn't give more than 100%. I just, it's hard for me to believe. I, that might be a controversial statement because some people may say, hey, I've met teachers that don't, that don't give 100%. But I mean, being a teacher is the hardest, hardest, hardest thing in existence. When I meet these college students, um, the recent college grads at Google that have um, just come out of <laughs> higher ed and you know are getting paid a lot to code and you know start talking about things that they're frustrated with. I look at them and I say, you know what? Talk to the teacher that makes twenty five thousand dollars a year and is literally busting their butt every single day for the future of this country to educate people like you, and then come back to me and complain about the things that are not going well in your life. Um, Amen. <laughs> yeah, that's, I've had that conversation um, more than once. And I think sometimes people in the tech industry are a little taken aback by it. But honestly, it's, it's a moment of down to earthedness that needs to be brought, I think, to um, a, a lot of the people in the space. But yeah, but I do think that I think that it's, it's hard to take feedback sometimes. And I don't want to necessarily was just because, say it was just because I was young or I was a woman. I'm sure that that played into it. But I do also think that there isn't necessarily a conducive environment in large school systems, big public districts, charter schools, really any school system, to sit there and really take the feedback when everybody's just overworked. But thinking about that, though, I mean, and there's gender bias in, in pretty much every element of our society. Definitely. It seems like even in trying to innovate, that gender comes into play. That is true. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, one of the things I found really interesting, going back to the Catholic school that I worked at, um, was that the entire staff, and I'm not kidding, the entire staff was female, save for the principal, who was a man. And I, th I remember at the time thinking to myself that the gender balance there was so striking and I'm sure in many ways impacted how things happened. Um, and I think that that's probably true in a lot of education systems is the, uh, the, the sort of gender imbalance and also looking at um, what, the, uh, what the balance is in administration versus in teaching. Because I know that administration tends to skew more male, whereas um, the teacher staff tends to skew more female. So what does that mean for the way that a school runs? You know, what does that mean for a way that um, the power dynamics happen? And the truth of the matter is, is that the tech world is not any different, at least not right now. Part of why I do the work that I do at Google and I'm on the diversity team is because I think that there are tactics that can be used to fix that. But I believe that right now, most tech companies are still pretty heavily male dominated, especially when it comes to leadership roles. And then when you start to look at race and ethnicity and how that plays into it, it's even starker. Um, when you're looking at the number of um, 
white and Asian men that are in positions of power versus women of any kind, but then also versus people of color. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of work that we have to do. Why does diversity matter? Oof, if I had a dime for every time someone's asked me that. I mean, it's, I just, I, it's amazing to me that people even need an answer to that question because diversity is what any scientist or any science teacher will tell you f- furthers the existence of a species. I mean, it's a tale as old as time, not to quote Aladdin, but you know, there we go. Um, and when people in the tech world ask me, why does diversity matter? I mean, I guess if I'm gonna, if I'm talking to someone who's a product manager and they work with customers, I'm like, all right, let's put this into some some language that maybe you understand. The customers that you're looking to serve are inherently diverse in themselves. They vary in terms of their likes, their dislikes, their backgrounds, who they are. Why would you have a staff of a homogeneity designing for a group of customers that's diverse? That's like saying that A equals B. Those two things don't make sense to me. So from just a business standpoint, it just makes good sense to have a diverse community of people designing for diverse community of customers. And I, I think the same thing about teaching. When you're educating a diverse community of students, theoretically, we should also be reflecting that diversity in the staff that is delivering that instruction. I will say there is a huge myth, and I've written about this on EdSurge before, of meritocracy and the role that that should play in how people get jobs. I do think that one thing that keeps folks from really delving into the importance of diversity and the impact that it makes on our world is this idea that you should be able to get what you deserve depending on how hard you work. But the truth of the matter is, is that is that's not that's not it. That's not everything. People get jobs based on so much more than how hard they work. They get it based on the connections that they have growing up. They get it based on the communities that they are lucky enough to be a part of. They get it based on literally how they look and how someone's bias is potentially affecting the way that they conceive of a, an, a potential employee. And so when I say, or when someone asks me, why does diversity matter? All of those thoughts are swirling through my head. And oftentimes that's why it takes a lot more than a five minute conversation to adequately address that question. It's really hard to understand uh, outside of your own personal life experience, what it's like for someone else. And I think, you know, thinking about design thinking and all of those things where you design a product or a project or an experience for an audience. And it kind of helps if you are part of that audience to really truly understand what they need and what they want. That's why you wonder does it really behoove these tech companies to only have white and Asian men in power? I mean, if we, (laughs) if tech companies really wanted to be as good as they possibly could, they would not allow that to happen. So it begs the question of why is that still a thing? And truthfully, that's a question that I've been asking myself over and over and over again for the last year and a half. Um, But it is something that I think people are, are gradually starting to, realize that homogeneity for long-term business success doesn't make sense. Do you think innovation means the same thing to women as it does to men? Sorry, long pause, because that is a very interesting question and one that I've never been asked before. So 
I don't think I can speak on behalf of all women, nor can I speak on behalf of all men. I think that innovation has a very personal definition for any individual that's asked. And to make a blanket statement based on, you know, one identifying factor of an individual would be really unfair. I mean, how deep then could we go with that? What if we said, you know, do you think innovation means something different to a black female versus an Asian man? It's just to, to categorize it in such large generalized categories. I don't think we can even go there because it's problematic, but I, I do think there's a bigger question here, which is the whole concept of innovation has become something that in many ways I think has been bastardized. I try to not use the word innovation as much anymore because I find that it has lost some of its value, similar to other words in like the ed tech industry, for example. You know, hearing things like personalized learning, I think has lost a lot of its value because it's just been overcomplicated and, and, and just bastardized by overuse. And so in many ways with the word innovation, I kind of feel the same. But it, it would be, I think, unfair for me to make a generalized statement about um, the definition of innovation as it applies to people based on gender. And I'll also say this as well, what that does is that it also limits you in, ter- in talking about um, genders um, very, uh, th- there's a duality to it, right? That male and female are the only genders that are, that are options. I mean, what about non-binary folks or people that don't identify as male or female? There's also a question of that, like what, what category do they fall into? Um, do they matter? How, how does their feeling about innovation affect the overarching conversations? Such a good point. Yeah, I love that. What's the alternative word for innovation? If we don't want to use innovation because it's been bastardized, what should we say? Oh, crap. <laughs> oh, Michael. <laughs> I feel like there's so many other words. Well, then here's where I think I'm coming up, a little, up against a little bit of a roadblock. I hear people talk, 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 talk so much in the Bay Area about the next big thing and innovation and what's new and what's fresh and what's going to replace everything else. And if there's anything I've come to learn over the last couple of years is that talk is very cheap. Show me what you want to do. So I would actually say, I don't really even want to replace the word innovation with anything. What I want people to show me is here's a problem that I discovered and here's how I solved it. Let's talk about the implications of my solution. What I would want to see are people basically you know, following the same scientific method that I, you know, taught when I was a sixth grade science teacher and showing me through their actions, how they want to make the world better. I love that. That's so great. It's your money where your mouth is. Exactly. Yes. I don't see that enough. People love to talk in the Silicon Valley. You know, if anybody wants to read a really good book, and I'm sure that some of you out there have read this, but please, please read Bad Blood. Um, uh, by John Carreyou, the guy who um, basically wrote all the pieces about Theranos, the now disgraced health healthcare startup. And it is a perfect lesson in how talk can really convince people of one thing when in reality, the actions are not there to back it up. What are some projects that you're working on right now that you're excited about? Ooh, oh, I love talking about the things that I'm working on. Um, so I... I do a couple of different things at Google. One of the ones that I'm really excited about um, is uh, a tech exchange, which is a program that 
um, we launched a couple years ago, uh, formerly known as Howard West. It is a program that brings students from HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, and HSIs, Hispanic Serving Institutions, um, to Google, almost as if it were a domestic study abroad program, um, but to essentially spend the full year at Google as a junior in college, um, getting a crash course in the computer science industry. So to give an example of like what that experience has been like this year, um, some of the kids took cloud computing, some of them took machine learning, um, a lot of them were taking courses around um, understanding the way that the technical interview works when you're trying to get a job in, um, you know, the Silicon Valley, for example. And what I'm excited about is that we are going to continue to host that program. And uh, it is something that has really received a lot of positivity on um, the Mountain View campus up here. And the kids, we just had graduation a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, I cried in spite of myself, but the way that the kids were just so excited, especially the ones that were coming back for internships this summer or going on to internships at other tech organizations, I mean, the joy in their faces and also the, the connections they'd formed with each other, with, with students from different universities that they'll have for a lifetime. I mean, that you, it's so hard to describe the feeling of elation that came out of that. And, you know, I can't wait because I know and I, I saw looking out at the crowd of graduates, there were about 65 of them, that you're looking at the future, you know, Black and Latinx Bill, Bill Gates of the world. Like, I guarantee you these kids are going to be ruling the world someday. And I honestly cannot wait to see that happen. Incredible. I love that. Yeah. Wow. What a great experience for everybody. I actually told I, one of the boys I told, we were talking and I said, you know, I half expect you to take my job at some point. And he looked at me because I thought I was joking. I was like, no, 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 no. You were going to take my job at some point and you're going to crash it. <laughs> well, MJ, this has been a really great conversation about so many important topics. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Michael. This was a real pleasure. I love the fact that you do this podcast and I can't wait to listen to future episodes. I hope you're as inspired by Mary Jo as I am and can use her insights as you reimagine your workspace. It's such a hard time right now, but just remember that innovation is messy. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good on your journey to success. If you want to hear more from MJ, listen to my extended conversation with her about women in the workplace. She talks about the important role mentoring played for her and why we should be doing the same to help diversify the next generation of tech leaders. If you like the podcast, rate us and write us a review. It helps people find us. And don't forget to sign up for our monthly email newsletter. You can find the details on our website, changethenarrative.net.